The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let's, uh, let's start with the uh, Q&A and see what we have tonight. Dear Ajahn, uh, when my senses start to drop off when meditating, uh, I lose feeling of my glasses on my nose and go, ah, where did my glasses go? <laughs> In a panic, like they have fallen off or I've lost them. I tried meditating without them on, but I get distracted by feeling them missing. <laughs> How would you suggest dealing with this? Thank you. I would suggest taking your glasses off while you meditate and then just get used to it. You may get distracted by feeling them missing for a while, but it won't be long before you get used to the idea. And you will just remember, okay, my glasses are off because I'm doing meditation practice. So meditation is always, the simpler things are, the less things that you have to distract you, the better it is. Yeah. So you have a loose, nice, comfortable clothing, and you have no glasses on, and that kind of reminds you that you don't need to see anyway while you're meditating. Yeah, your glasses are off. No need to see anything, which is kind of handy. So that's what I would uh, I would recommend. And then it won't be long before you get into that, and then you'll be happy and without your glasses on. Uh, <coughs> Dear Ajahn, it has been my understanding that Anapanasati has its origin in Brahmanic practices. Is this so in your view? Um, is it based on Brahmanic practices? And uh, I, I don't think so. As far as I know, there is no evidence. I, I'm not aware anyway. I'm no expert in Brahmanical uh, scriptures. Uh, but uh, the, the Brahmanical scriptures are very large, and it depends on which ones you look at. But uh, the Brahmanical scriptures that are earlier than the Buddhist scriptures are not that many. It's the Vedas, the Upanishads, that sort of thing. And I don't think there is any mention of Anapanasati in those scriptures. It may exist in later Brahmanical scriptures. Yeah, it came after the Buddhist teachings. And there's an interesting kind of uh, uh, synergy between the Brahmanical uh, suttas, the Brahmanical discourses, and the Buddhist ones. Uh, obviously, Buddhism is very much, uh, to some extent at least, reliant on the Brahmanical literature, because that was the culture in India at the time. Uh, so we used a certain vocabulary, they reacted to Brahmanical ideas, uh, and they may have used even some of the Brahmanical ideas, ideas whenever they were considered to be right. Yeah? So they kind of accorded with how the Buddhists view the world. Uh, but then, in, on the other hand, Buddhism also gave a lot of its ideas to the Brahmanical culture. So a lot of the later Brahmanical ideas actually are very likely to have been influenced, at least, by Buddhism. And part of that would have been meditation practice. So I think it's more likely that Anapanasati, if it does exist in the Brahmanical literature, is more likely to come from Buddhism than the other way around. There were mystics in Brahmanical literature prior to Buddhism. There's a very famous one called uh, Yavna Kalkya or something like that. I can't remember his name exactly now. Uh, Yajna Kalkya, I think it is. Uh, and he's one of the famous mystics of Brahmanical literature prior to Buddhism. And he had obviously seemed to have had some you know, good samadhi experiences and that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't think there was any mention there of... Uh, uh, anapanasati and that kind of meditation practice. Uh, so uh, 
unsure. I cannot give you a definite answer because I'm not familiar enough with the Brahmanical teachings to give you a, an absolute answer on that, but that is my understanding. Yeah. If so, how would the Brahmanic practices differ from the Buddha's practice? Because of the different view of self, how self, uh, now self and anicca and the causes of dukkha, would the Brahmanic practice be almost uh, unrecognizably different? Uh, thank you. Uh, certainly, the different views about anicca, about self, yeah, and anicca as well, because these things obviously go together. Uh, so this is a kind of the fundamental difference between Brahmanical ideas and. Uh, and Buddhism, and Buddha, Brahmanical ideas usually end with samadhi. Samadhi is the goal, and samadhi is taken to be, if you like, a proof that there is a self, because a samadhi experience has all those characteristics. It is unified, it is happy. Satchit Ananda is one of those famous sayings of Brahmanical literature, which is the what you are, Satchit Ananda, Sat, existence, Chit, mind, Ananda, bliss. So like the existing mental bliss yeah that is considered to be like the absolute often in brahmanical literature uh, where the self and the brahma are the same uh, and you kind of merge with the absolute in a sense uh, and that of course is different from buddhism because in a buddhist teaching yes you have those samadhi experiences as well but in buddhism you try to go beyond those samadhi experiences you know buddhism would argue there is something beyond that uh, so I would say that is really where the main difference is between the two. But a lot of the path is the same in the sense that the goal of samadhi is one of the highest goals of Buddhism as well, before you go beyond it, beyond that. And in that sense, the Brahmanical teaching actually leads you in the right direction. And that is why I think the Buddha was able to make his breakthrough, Yeah, because he had Brahmanical teachers, uh, Alara Kalama, Uddha who were able to teach him Samadhi. So he already was halfway to the goal before, you know, before he had needed to make that final breakthrough of giving everything up. Anicca, well, Anicca is similar, but it's just that uh, from a Buddhist point of view, we take the idea of Anicca further to include the Anicca of things like Satchit Ananda and Brahma or whatever. That too is impermanent according to Buddhism. Um, yeah, so a lot of similarities, but uh, uh, more um, also some differences. The, the, one of the interesting things, if you read a little bit in the Brahmanical discourses, is that they are, have a very different flavor from the Buddhist teachings, whereas the Buddhist teachings are very uh, practical and pragmatic and very systematic and very analytical. Yeah, it is kind of everything is kind of really uh, very clear. The Brahmanical uh, teachings are much more mystical. It is often verse, and sometimes you know, if you read the ancient Vedas, it can be very hard to understand what is going on because it is a mystical literature. It's supposed to transport you into a different reality almost by reading them, and uh, it is often very difficult to interpret. It's difficult enough to interpret the Buddhist Sutta sometimes, but when it comes to the Vedas, it's a different ballgame altogether. It's almost almost impenetrable, some of the things. And the same thing with the Upanishads, it's more mystical. Yajnavalkya is a much more mystical person than the saints of, of the Buddhist literature, in the mystical, in the sense of hard to comprehend what is going on. Anyway, that's my take on that. 
Dear Ajahn, could you please explain how to contemplate object of the meditation during walking meditation? Uh, do you have to use willpower? Um, there is a little bit more willpower involved with walking meditation because you have to use a bit of will to be able to walk in the first place. So the will is a little bit more activated. Uh, the mind is, and that's why the mind tends to become more peaceful when you sit down. But even walking meditation, it almost becomes automatic after a while, especially if you use a natural pace. If you force yourself to walk slowly, more willpower is required. But if you walk naturally, there's even less willpower required. And that's one of the reasons why walking naturally can be quite useful. But it depends on what you do again. If you just watch the feeling in the feet, then not much willpower is required and you can become very peaceful and still and you can have very beautiful experiences just in walking meditation. But if you do a contemplation of the suttas or of death or of metta and all of these things, they all require a little bit more activity. Yeah, So a little bit of willpower is required with those kind of meditation objects. So it just depends on what you what you want to do. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so sometimes just walk around, just enjoy. Yeah, just allow the mind to wander a bit, be free, especially if you feel a bit, little bit tight after sitting down and meditating. Yeah, just wander about a bit. Allow the mind to be free. It's quite nice. Yeah, and just enjoy the, uh, the, the you know the kangaroos or the birds and the sun and the wind or whatever is out there and the the forest uh, and just uh, uh, it's nice to get out of this hole a little bit as well uh, and do a bit of both. Uh. So uh, I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but and if it doesn't, then please try again tomorrow, and then we'll see see what happens then. So, okay, uh, dear Ajahn, thank you so much for your very inspiring insight into the suttas. Uh, read the Anapanasati suttas. The jhanas are not mentioned. Where do they uh, fit in? Uh, that is true, the jhanas are not mentioned. Uh, the, uh, where they fit in is at the very uh, and at step number 12. Yeah? Step number 12 is where it says in Pali, vimochayang chitang. And vimochayang is related to the word vimuti. Vimuti means liberation. And vimochayang is the verb. It means liberating the mind. And vimuti, the jhanas are states of vimuti and vimoka. They are liberated states. So when you say vimochayang chitang, what you're doing is you're doing the very last thing that gets you into the jhana states. You're liberating the mind. It's the last thing that happens before you enter the jhanas. And the reason why the jhanas are not mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta is because Anapanasati can only take you to the door of the jhanas. But once you enter the jhanas, the breath disappears. So breath meditation stops at the door to the jhanas. Beyond that, there is no accessibility to the breath anymore. So it takes you all the way. And that's why that, 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 that is the very last step there. Um, uh, it, it is uh, said in the commentary. The commentary says, for example, that uh, the, you know, where you have piti and sukha uh, in the Anapanasati Sutta, it uh, interprets that as the first couple of jhanas, uh, because piti and sukha are aspects of the first jhanas. Uh, yeah, but uh, to me, I, I find that a little bit hard to follow because uh, uh, 
everything in Buddhism is gradual. It's a gradual descent into deeper and deeper samadhi. And if you have the jhanas at that stage already, you cannot destroy the beautiful progress of this particular uh, sutta, and which you also find in the Satipatthana Sutta. So I find, it, I find the alternative interpretation of seeing it as a gradual progression much more convincing. And that's why you have Vimocheyang Chittang at the very end, yeah, step number 12, before you begin with the more insight and wisdom practices, you have it there at the very end. So that is how I read that, and that is, uh, I think, a, a fairly generally accepted interpretation as well. According to Ayakema's teaching, after a prolonged period of deep concentration when the breath falls away and disappears, uh, uh, if utterly uh, delightful sensations uh, uh, come up, i.e. piti is first jhana. Uh, Uh, okay, so if the breath falls away, then the piti is the first jhana. Huh? Okay, huh? if one's practice is developed enough, this can lead into the second jhana, huh? Pro- pronounced, propound joy, huh? when one lets go of piti and sukha. I uh, and sukha. Okay, um, maybe. Huh? Yeah, this is uh, possible. If you if you really let go of the breath fully and the breath really disappears utterly. Huh? then it could very well be a jhana state because that is precisely where the breath falls away and the body falls away, senses fall away and all of that. Uh, so it is possibly the case. Uh, yeah, I, I can't really say. It's difficult to really know fully from that kind of explanation, uh, but it's possible. Uh, uh, so, but really, the, uh, the, the samadhi experiences really tend to be, if they really are deep, like entering a different reality. It is not just the pity that you can have with the breath, and the breath sometimes becomes very peaceful and disappears, but it's almost like you enter a different reality because you're leaving the entire sensory realm behind. It's like the mind turns almost and then enters a new realm, and you have no access anymore to those other things. That is really when the samadhi attains kind of the full status of samadhi. And that is why it is very profound. That is why it is called Uttarimanusadhamma in the suttas. The qualities beyond the ordinary human qualities. Uttari Manusa. Manusa is human in Pali. Uttari means beyond. So qualities beyond the human, uh, ordinary human state, if you like. Yeah, and they are called al- alang arya nanadasana visesa, knowledge and vision, distinctions in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. So you are talking about things that are close to enlightenment stages, basically. So they are supposed to be very, very profound. Um, from your knowledge of the suttas, do you think that above states are jhana states or not? Again, I, uh, it's hard to say. They could be, they might be, uh, depending exactly on what uh, Ayakema means by this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, is, uh, it is always, these things are always uh, tricky and, and interpretation can be hard. And sometimes you, you need to kind of talk to the person to be really be sure what they mean by these things. Uh, so maybe. Uh, that's really the best I can say, unfortunately. Uh. <clears throat> Hi Ajahn, thank you for your talk on the Anapanasati Sutta. 
I have practiced this in the past and obviously I was instructed from a commentary as where we were instructed to watch the breath at the nose. I did occasionally gain some stillness or concentration. However, mainly I experienced a hot head and thus practiced and thus practiced less. Thank you. Okay, so you became hot-headed, is that right? Or does it mean that you, you just heat, overheated a little bit? Probably means you overheated a little bit. So, um, yeah, so try see if you can expand the feeling of the breath a little bit. Maybe that will help. Maybe it was too intense for you, and you were in, and that's why you were starting to feel hot, perhaps. So just, um, just kind of... Uh, uh, relax the attention a little bit. Allow it to be more broad. Don't go to the breath too quickly. Allow things to be calm. Make sure you don't force the attention. You don't grasp the breath too too much. If you grasp, it becomes unpleasant. Uh, have a good attitude towards the breath. See it as your friend. Have affection for the breath. Have metta. All these positive qualities uh, will lead you to have, have a very positive experience of this. Uh, it's supposed to be a pleasant experience. Uh, yeah, too many people make breath meditation into a chore, and then when it becomes a chore, it becomes uh, uh, something not very nice at all. Uh, and uh, so, just experiment a little bit uh, and try to kind of get it, uh, you know, get a more kind of useful approach, uh, so you don't get so hot-headed. <laughs> as a consequence, it's not it's not good to get hot-headed. Yeah, you want to be cool-headed, uh, have a warm heart and a cool head. Is kind of the ideal combination uh, in these things. Uh. So see how you how you go, and uh, but don't give up. Remember that if things kind of are difficult, there's always a solution to these things, and very often the solution will be in a place that you don't expect. Some people who have problem with meditation practice, it is simply because they haven't developed enough of the other spiritual qualities. So regardless of how long they sit on the bottom, they never, nothing is ever going to happen because they haven't developed everything else. Sometimes you just need to have a your mental attitude might be completely wrong. You need to have that kindness and generosity in your heart before meditation really can work. It is specifically said in the suttas that you can only enter a jhana state if you have a generous heart. So you have to kind of have this open heart, yeah, wanting to share with the whole world, wanting to be kind to everyone. That is the kind of heart that allows you to enter into the jhana states. So if you, you know, if you haven't got that, then you have to maybe develop that a little bit more. Otherwise, you will, uh, you know, you, nothing is going to happen. It doesn't matter how many hours you sit. That's kind of completely irrelevant because the factors aren't right. So you have to understand the Buddhist path in a broad way with all the factors, and only then does it really start to make sense. And you have to look in the right place. It is not about the mechanics of the meditation. It is about the overall development of the path very often, that actually is the thing that you need to uh, check out and to work on. Uh, okay. Uh, dear Ajahn Brahmali, if you uh, liken me to the simile of being the chick in the eggshell, uh, you have come along with a dhamma and cracked my shell again and again, okay, leaving an unrepairable hole for me to get my claws and break into and pull down the walls and my delusion and work on obliterating my defilements with the light of the Dhamma. Wow, that is, a, that is some sentence. Okay, good. Well, I'm very <laughs> that's, that's very nice to, nice to hear. Okay, there is no better way to thank you than going forth. Okay, if you had been born a female in reference to 
the absurd politics in Buddhism at the moment, uh, would you seek ten precepts of full ordination? Uh, and where would you ordain? Uh, with metta? Um, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, a difficult question. It is unfortunately the case that it is more difficult to find a suitable place as a female for obviously obvious reasons, because you have been, uh, you know, there has been no real Buddhist monasticism in the Theravada tradition for women for over a thousand years. That means it takes a while before it kind of gets established again. But it is getting established now very fast, and I suspect that it won't be long before you probably have more. A female monastics then you have male this is what often happens yeah this is what happens in places like taiwan taiwan there's many more nuns bhikkhunis than there are bhikkhus so uh, i think it's only a matter of time before you will again have a very strong bhikkhuni sangha in theravada buddhism in sri lanka there's already thousands of bhikkhunis in thailand there's over to around 200 at least and uh, in uh, western countries also there is a is a lot uh, yeah it's happening everywhere uh, so it's wonderful to see that happening it gives more opportunities and we need those opportunities for women uh, so um uh, try out a few different places. This is what I recommend. Don't make a decision based on one place alone uh, and see what it what it feels like. Uh, there are some nice monasteries in Thailand, for example. Uh, I have been to some of the monasteries there. I w- I've been invited a couple of times to give teachings uh, to the bhikkhunis in Thailand. Uh, you can go to Venerable Dhammananda's monastery outside of Bangkok uh, and ask her for some, you know, for some places to go. Uh, I went to a very small, nice little rural monastery for bhikkhunis uh, in Thailand a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was beautiful. It was really nice. And I think it would have been very suitable for meditation practice. But it's still very undeveloped. Yeah, it is still, it needs a lot of support to get all the infrastructure and buildings and things into place. So uh, this is kind of one of the hard, hardest things is to get that support. Of course, there is the Masara Monastery in, uh, uh, in Perth. And you can probably put, maybe put your name on the list for that monastery if you want to. And you have Newbury Buddhist Monastery, yes. Uh, and the advantage of the Masara and also Newbury Monastery is that uh, they have, are well, quite well supported because you have Ajahn Brahm there in the background helping to raise money and things. So you get at very least you have a good infrastructure. Yeah, you get the, all the things. And uh, they're just uh, embarking now on a major building program at uh, Newbury Monastery, right, Cora? It's all happening up there. And it means that you will have good facilities there. And it's important to have facilities. Facilities aren't everything, but it certainly helps. The most important thing with a community is that you feel at ease. You feel relaxed. You feel that these are people you would like to live with. It has a good atmosphere in the monastery. It's so important to have a good atmosphere in the monastery. Yeah, this really matters a lot. Uh, and then, uh, when uh, when you have that, then your meditation is likely to go well. If you feel that the at- monastery has an atmosphere of fault finding and uh, it is a bit too harsh, maybe because the rules are emphasized in slightly the wrong way or something like that, uh, then it becomes much more difficult to develop your meditation because uh, uh, you ha- you become a bit hard. Yeah, you lose that softness inside uh, that is required for meditation to work. Uh. So try around a little bit. Uh, see what is available. There are monasteries, many monasteries around the world. You probably know about a lot of those monasteries uh, already. Uh, and uh, if not, you can you can ask me more privately as well. You're more welcome to approach me more privately at the interview time or at the end of the retreat or whatever. Uh, and you can kind of ask about these things. Uh, 
But it's wonderful that you are keen because uh, to me, this is really the meaning of life. This is what it's all about. Uh, yeah, and uh, why why not? If you find the meaning of life, why not kind of do that? It kind of make if you, once you find the meaning of life, what else are you going to do, really? Uh, so it's uh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. So good luck. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, how can I use right effort to control my excessive feelings of guilt? I notice I feel guilt even if uh, if I unintentionally ignore someone or unintentionally uh, kill an insect. I have uh, noticed people around me using guilt to manipulate me into a lifestyle harmful to me. Okay, so... Um, uh, I rather than control uh, the excessive feelings of guilt, uh, it is uh, uh, probably more useful to uh, try to either think differently, to use wisdom, uh, or to develop yourself out of that. Uh, uh, I think um, maybe one of the problems, perhaps you are too concerned about what other people think about you, for, for example. Uh, that is one problem. Uh, and then perhaps you feel a bit self-conscious and you feel maybe feel guilty or whatever. Uh, I don't know exactly what is going on with you. Uh, but uh, really, the more you live the life, spiritual life well, if you live the spiritual life really well, uh, then after a while you don't really care about what other people think anymore. Uh, and the guilt tends to disappear because you know that you're doing the right thing. You know you're living well. You know you're living with kindness. Yeah, You know you're doing all the right things. Uh, so because of that, it doesn't really matter what other people think. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, just gradually develop yourself out of this, uh, and then you, uh, you know, you you kind of overcome it that way. Uh. But uh, just also, you know, be wise about it. If you unintentionally kill an insect, uh, absolutely no reason to feel guilty about it. Uh. Yeah, because this is unavoidable. You probably, we probably kill, we unintentionally kill insects all the time, uh, just by walking down the path, you know, outside, uh, or by doing anything. You can guarantee you're going to kill all kinds of insects by doing that. Uh. And if you feel guilty about that, then you're going to be immersed in guilt all the time. Uh, and that's going to be impossible. So just try to be reasonable about it. Remember, you have a body, it's unavoidable that you're going to kill insects. You have a big body, insects have a small body, and because of that, it's the nature of things, you're going to kill those insects. It's okay. So just try to try to kind of reflect on these things in a reasonable way. And then rejoice that you are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, you have come here, you're obviously practicing the Buddhist teachings in a good way, you're doing all of these things, and what a wonderful thing that is. Yeah, be happy about what you're doing. And, and once you are happy about what you're doing and you're encouraging yourself in the right way, then that guilt will very quickly, it will start to disappear and dissipate because you realize it's just nonsense. You are living well, and when you are living well, guilt really has no room in, in that kind of mind state. If there is something that you really have reason to be guilty about, yeah, maybe there are some things that you actually, you know, there is kind of good grounds for that guilt, then, of course, you have to learn to let go of that by forgiving, by understanding, you know, these ideas of, uh, you know, we are conditioned beings, sometimes we do things that are stupid, uh, uh, but to some extent you can forgive that because uh, uh, it is just because you are con have been conditioned in a certain way. Uh, and then as you 
forgive that uh, and remember that forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is not a one-off event and then it's all done. It happens gradually. You have to do it again and again and again and gradually it disappears. Yeah, it is not something that can just do like that. So uh, allow things to fade away slowly. Uh, there is, with these things, there is no magic bullet that will kind of get everything, rid of everything. Uh, it is always a development of the mind out of the problems uh, and into more serenity, contentment, happiness, satisfaction, and all these other kind of things. Uh, so uh, just, uh, uh, just um, try to gain some insight into what is going in in your mind uh, and then uh, use a bit of wisdom to overcome these things. Uh, you have to do this yourself because you have to know what is happening with you and then hopefully you can let go of that. There may be many things going on here that are kind of deeper which cause you to feel guilty about things you shouldn't feel guilty about. There may be something else going on because it is not, you know, it is not really a natural response to feel guilty if you kill an insect by accident. So try to look deeper into your mind and see what is going on there. Why are you feeling like that? And once you see the root cause of these things, then you can do something about it usually. Okay, and if you feel that other people are trying to manipulate you, uh, then uh, just uh, you can just ignore that. Yeah, it is not really, it is none of your business if other people are stupid uh, and they try to manipulate, it's actually their problem. Uh, nothing to do with you. Uh, and just uh, ignore what is going on. Uh. Okay, and then we have the last question uh, for today here. Thank you very much, Ajahn, for coming here to do this retreat for us. I learned and realized a lot. Many merits to you. And thank you, everyone who is here, for sharing and being an inspiration to me. Thank you, Ajahn. See you next year, amigos. <laughs> okay, that's very good. Probably someone who left today, I assume. So, uh, excellent. That's kind of the, that's the really nice notes and very easy here. And uh, uh, so uh, that's good. So that is all for tonight. So uh, please keep on enjoying yourself. Uh, have a nice, some more nice meditation. Uh, if you like, have a good night's rest. Uh, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Uh, let's just pay respect to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Arahang Samma Sambuddho Bhagava Buddhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Svakatu Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supati Pano Bhagavato Savaka Sango Sangang Namami Yam